everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Black Menaces podcast. So happy to be on the show. My name is Nate and my other host is... Rachel Weaver. We are so happy to be here with you guys today. Yes, indeed. We're going to jump right into our menace moment. This week, we're going to be talking about the Honorable James Baldwin. James mm-hmm. Baldwin was um, really just an icon of the 19... or of the, of the civil rights movement. He was born on August 6, 19... I'm sorry. He was born August 2nd, 1924, in New York City. He grew up the oldest of nine children um, in Harlem, New York. He was born to a young single mother. From 14 to 16, he was active outside of school as a preacher at a small revivalist church, and he also began writing um, his short stories, poems, and novels in his teenage years. Um, Once he graduated high school, he worked odd jobs um, while studying and also doing a literary apprenticeship in Greenwich Village. And then in 1948, he moved to Paris and lived there um, until 1956 for about seven years or so, eight years. Um, And then in later years, he actually ended up traveling frequently between Paris and New York, um, but mostly resided in in Paris. Um, When he returned to the U.S. in 1957, after that initial stint in in Paris, um, he became heavily involved in the civil rights movement. And many of his novels, plays, short stories, poems, things like that center around um, issues having to do with racism, with identity, with sexuality, all those kinds of things. Um, He had the longest, this was an interesting fact that I found, Um, he actually had the longest file of any black artist in the civil rights era, spanning about 1900 pages, which is crazy. Oh, wow. Because most people had a file, like, I think they said like one person had a file that was like nine pages long. One person had a file that was like 25 pages long, you know, 100, but he had a 1,900-page file. So um, if you ever wanted to to hear the, or if you ever want a confirmation that the pen is mightier than the sword, I guess James Baldwin is your proof. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so those, um, and like his, a lot of his writings focus on like politics, identity, sexuality, all those <laughs> kinds of things. Um, and then some of his works you might be familiar with. Um, he had one called Nobody Knows My Name, um, If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, and then, you know, a few different other ones. Um, and he was very progressive in his views on sexuality, uh, which was very unusual for the time, but he believed that it was more fluid than society allowed. And he was very open about his relationships with both men and women. Um, and then in 1987 on December 1st, so actually what in two days, it'll be like the, the 40 something anniversary of his passing. Uh, oh wow! I know. I think it was at the thirty fifth, thirty fifth anniversary of his passing. Um, he died in Saint Paul, France, of stomach cancer at the age of sixty three. Oh wow! But that That's is kind of young. Yeah, pretty young. But yeah, that is James Baldwin. That was his life, and he has a lot of uh, amazing quotes. I'm going to read a few of them that I had um, pulled aside not too long ago. Okay, so here's a few, um, you know, some of the things that he said uh, that I found were really powerful. He said, an identity would seem to be arrived at by the way in which a person faces and uses his experience. So basically, like, the way that we tackle our challenges and the way that we experience life is how we, like, find our identities. Um, He said, the questions which oneself, the questions which one asks oneself begin at least to illuminate the world and become one's key to the experience of others. So in short, the way that um, the questions that we ask ourselves allow us to understand other people more fully. Um, no people come into possession of a culture without having paid a heavy price for it. 
And this one, which was cool, he said, it is only in his music, which Americans are able to admire because of a protective sentimentality, limits their understanding of it, that the Negro in America has been able to tell his story. So basically, like, because music is looked at differently than, like, words, um, black people are able to say more in music and get away with it. And uh, I know you're going to hate me for this, but my example for this is Kendrick Lamar, right? He'd be saying stuff all the time. Like, for instance, think about how big the song DNA is. And uh, in the second verse, (laughs) he's like, my DNA is not for imitation. Your DNA is an abomination. And when I went to a Kendrick Lamar concert, when I tell you the amount of white people that were just, like, rapping that line just up and down, not realizing it, like, do you realize, like, he's talking about, (laughs) about, like, racism and whiteness and stuff like that? And it just kind of like goes over their head because music is viewed in a different way. So my hey, my most recent favorite is the Worldwide Steppers. Mm, hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that whole album, fire. Either your one line where he's like, "One protest for you, three sixty five for me." Same thing, just right over people's oh. head, right over people's head. So anyway, a little few quotes from James Baldwin, and uh, yeah, let's jump into our subject matter for the day. All right, so uh, if you guys know, the World Cup is happening right now, and we're not going to talk about soccer in particular. Sorry Although, for all the soccer. Shout fans. out to the USA for winning their uh, their last chance, last-ditch effort to get into the, the round of 16. Yay. That's my <laughs> most enthusiasm I'm going to have. <laughs> soccer, yay. <laughs> continue, continue. Yes, yes. Um, shout out to the soccer fiends. Listen, we, we we love this time for you guys. But we wanted to talk about an interview that the captain of the United States team, Tyler Adams, uh, had. Like I think it was a post game interview type thing. And um, I think Iran. That's how it's pronounced. Iran, an Irani interview person, right? Um, reporter, um, journalist asked him a question um, about racism in America. Pretty much he said, the, the exact question was, um, oh, he said, oh, how do you feel about playing for a country that has so much discrimination against black people in its own borders? Now, Tyler Adams had a great response. First, because the reporter and journalists was being a little nasty in the, their approach to kind of correct him in the way he was pronouncing Iran. Um, or, yeah, but anywho, that's besides the point. But his response was really interesting, and I'm just going to share a few of the quotes of what he responded back. He pretty much was like, there's discrimination everywhere you go. And he said, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and having to fit into different cultures and kind of assimilate into different cultures is that in the U.S., we're continuing to make progress every day. And then he's half black, half white. Um, And he said, growing up for me, I grew up in a white family and with obviously an African-American heritage and background as well. So I had a bit of different cultures and I was very easily able to assimilate into different cultures. He said, not everyone has the ease and the ability to do that. And obviously it takes longer to understand. And through education, I think it's super important. Like you just educated me on how to say the pronunciation of your country. So yeah, it's a process. I think as long as you see progress, that's the most important thing. 
So I thought his response was great um, because it's true. You know, there's so much discrimination everywhere. And I just want to know before we get into our conversation of kind of talking about, because this led me innate to think about just, you know, anti-Blackness as a whole, or just like how, you know, discrimination for Black people exists everywhere, not just in the United States. But um, I just think it's interesting. I saw a TikToker point this out in a video. So it's not my call out. I'm pulling someone else's idea. But she she pointed out that oh though he's the first African American captain of the United States men's soccer team and no previous white soccer the captain of the U.S. team have been asked about racism and things like that in interviews right, and it's just right. another example about how black people have to represent things that they don't always necessarily ask to represent right a white person who has been the captain has been asked how do you feel about the racist stuff that you and your people are doing right like mm -hmm. in your country and the heritage that you come from right those kind of questions aren't asked to white people right, um right. and Austin, i'm not saying we shouldn't ask them but if we're gonna be um you know ask black people and ask them to answer questions about race in a post soccer game interview i think that white people should be held to the same standard it's just showing you know not the same standard for Black and white players, people, especially with the platform, black people who have a platform always have to speak on issues while white people can just exist in whatever career or reason that they have a platform. Um, but Nate, kind of take us away into starting our discussion on, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording today about just how, you know, discrimination exists everywhere for black people, not just right. in the US all over the <laughs> or in North America. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm pulling up a video right now. Um, this basically happened in South Africa not too long ago. I guess there have been some cases in South Africa of um, of people being mauled or attacked by pit bulls, um, which is a very specific breed of dog. They have a bad reputation for being vicious and, and things like that. But I guess there's been some a few maulings or attacks, and so there's been kind of calls to like you know ban uh, this particular breed of dog to ban pit bulls from. Um, you know, from, from being in, in South Africa. And so there was this little private social media group. Um, I think it was a Facebook group of like dog lovers or something like that. But this South African woman gets on and this is what she says. And so this is, I think that, like this was on a podcast or a radio station and they, they played this clip. Um, and yeah, I'm just, let me just play it really quick. Yeah, let's take a listen to this clip, which was uh, surfaced here in what uh, appears to be some kind of a, a WhatsApp group of uh, dog lovers. Um, and uh, this is what uh, was uh, some views that were spewed out by one of the people in this group. Mr. I agree with you wholeheartedly. What I say is ban the black man. They rape, they steal, they kill worse than any pit bull could. And they get away with it. Ban those that are making the laws. Ban Ekralini. Ban the black man. Get all the black women and cut out their uteruses and their ovaries that they cannot procreate because they will all turn out the same because they are all the same. I'm very passionate about this. Ban them. Kill them. Shoot them. Get rid of them because they are the problem. Not pit bulls, not animals. Animals are beautiful and they uh, deserve uh, a warm bed, uh, food, love and attention and everything else. God created those animals. Who created the black man? Do you think God? I don't think so. <laughs> so, uh, and 
Ooh, crazy, right? Child, look. So, yeah, that happened in South Africa. The funny thing about this is um, this happened in a group for dog lovers, right? So completely uncalled for. No, um, seriously. How do we get to this, babes? <laughs> yeah, but when I heard this, my first thought was, okay, remind me how, how y'all got to, to South Africa again? Like, you Ooh. How did you get to South Africa? It was by raping, killing, stealing, mm. and then like segregating the entire country for right. a century or two, like a century, maybe. I don't know. It was a long time. Like y'all created apartheid to the point, like it was so bad to the point where, um, I, you know, I was talking to someone from South Africa and they're saying that this woman is actually in custody now because the racism in oh. South Africa is so bad that they've actually criminalized, um, wow. they've criminalized racist speech. And so they have freedom of speech, but racism is not protected under freedom of speech, which I thought was, wow. I, didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was pretty, kind of incredible. So she's in custody. I don't know necessarily what that means. It could be a fine. It could be prison time. Um, but yeah, here is somebody in South Africa who is saying, oh, these dogs are not to blame. They deserve food and a warm bed. But these black people, let's cut out their yeah. uteruses. Let's not, you know, let's kill them all. Let's shoot them because they don't deserve to live. God did not create them, right? And I was just like, man, that is some, that's some hardcore racism. Um, no, for real. And it's no different than like what we'd experience here in the U.S. I think here in the U.S. is probably a little bit more taboo. Um, like people are not going to say those kinds of things out loud as often. They're just going to believe them or say them in private or at Thanksgiving dinner or what have you. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. But... Um, <laughs> But, You're funny, Nate. Yeah, but hearing that, um, it just kind of made me think, like, yeah, you know, anti-blackness exists everywhere. And so for Tyler Adams to to make the comment that, you know, um, that, you know, he basically has the privilege to live somewhere where progress is allowed to be made. You know, the progress is, um, it's very small, but it is coming, like, a little bit at a time. But anti-blackness exists everywhere in the world. It's not just a United States problem. So, you know, people are like, oh, if you don't like it, then leave leaving isn't necessarily going to solve the issue because this is in Africa. It's South Africa, mind you, but like this is this is Africa. You would think that maybe the least anti-black place on in the world would be Africa, but that's not even the case. Um, and talking to, I have a, a very, you know, someone who I consider a good friend from Kenya. And one of the things that he told me was that, um, you know, the way that black Americans are perceived in Africa um, is in a very negative light because the media that they get is mostly... Um, you know, media that portrays black people in a negative light, black American people specifically. And so they, you know, when they get the opportunity to come to the United States, they're told to stay away from black people. Um, they're socialized to believe that they're taught that. And then they also, um, which is crazy because they are black. So it's right. like, wait, what you mean? <laughs> but they still, yeah, they still other black Americans because when they look at, you know, an American movie, they see a black person portrayed as someone who is unintelligent or someone who is, is violent or, or what have you. Um, and so, yeah, they come here with this, this otherism mindset, you know, and they, they tend to look down on us until racism happens to them. Then it's a different thing. But, um, you know, so anti-blackness exists in Africa. Um, there was a, I think during the pandemic, there was some videos that surfaced of Chinese people in Africa beating um, you know, some of the people that worked for them. Did you ever see that? Wait, I didn't see this. Yeah, it was like a Chinese man beating an African child because he wasn't working hard enough or something like that. And basically what China is wow. doing right now, um, 
there's a lot of, 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 of colonization going on where they're going in and they're exploiting African countries for their resources. Um, they are generating a lot of debt in Africa and, and things like that. And so um, they're buying up lots of land. Basically, they're just like modern day colon, co- colonizing, mod- modern day colonizing um, a lot of countries and cities and things like that in Africa. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean, it, it's wild. But yeah, anti-blackness is something that exists everywhere. Like we could so we could go to every single continent and talk about mm-hmm. the anti-blackness that exists there in different forms. So we talk about a lot what it goes on in America because we live here. But we want you to realize that it's not just an American issue. This is a global issue, and it has everything to do with colonialism and with the British um, and and other Europeans, as the Spanish, the Portuguese, um, traveling around the world and carrying that anti-black sentiment with them. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I'm going to bring in a little history real quick. Um, there's come on, professor. This, you know, kind of, huh? I said, come on, professor. Stop. <laughs> but I'm just looking at a quick map of the transatlantic slave trade just so that people can understand, like, why this exists. Like, this is a bigger issue even in, like, places like South America and Asia as well, kind of what you were saying, Nate, um, which, again, is left out of the conversation a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. But if we're looking at numbers, pure numbers, only half a million Black people um, or African people from West Africa were brought to the United States. Everyone else, the other, how many million? 15 million enslaved people that were transported during that whole time were brought to other places. And I don't think we realized that those people were slaves when they went there. They were lower class. Um, you know, they were treated still as the other because, again, they're these people that were brought there that are not native to that land. And so because of that, they were always treated as, you know, the bottom of society and wherever they were brought. There were 4.5 brought to the West Indies. There were 5 million brought to, like, Brazil. Half a million brought to Peru. Um, it says a quarter of a million were brought to Central America. And then um, I think that's um, I think that's almost like 400,000 um, were brought to Europe. So like they were brought all over and these people had to adjust to having, you know, these people who were imported into their areas and they were, you know, sent there to work a lot of times and every situation was different in every country, but overall still, Black people were not valued in the same way that the people of that native land were, and they were treated as other for a very long time. It is still persists persist today through the anti-Blackness we see and through the ideas of just Black people and dark people, anyone that's associated with being dark as being less than, right? And um, it's just really interesting because this happens, again, like me and Nate were talking before we started, like this happens in, um, when we look at representation in other countries in their media not just you know the way black americans are portrayed but also you know we look at anything in south and central america there are indigenous people from those countries that are dark that have more indigenous features Mm -hmm. that does not come from that does not come from them naturally anything you know, wider nose, darker skin, that's coming from Europe, from the Portuguese, that is not coming from, you know, overall from these countries. And so indigenous people of these lands are seen as less beautiful. They're seen as, you know, they're treated, they are statistically 
um, more poor in a lot of like third world and developing countries. Mm -hmm. And so um, anti-blackness ties into colorism as well, you know, across the globe. Absolutely. You see that in, in like representation as well. Um, most countries, when you look at um, the, 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 the faces that they choose to represent their country, uh, for mm -hmm. the most part, you see white faces um, or white looking faces, meaning the skin is much, much lighter. Um, when in reality, most of those countries um, tend to have a darker skinned population. Um, you know, if you look at places like Brazil, which, um, you know, there's a lot of of cultural diversity in Brazil because of how many uh, West Africans were brought to that country. And then, you know, everything that happened afterwards. But if you look at the way that the hierarchy is set up there, um, if you go to the richer areas of Brazil, you're going to find mostly white Brazilians. And then the, the lower income you go, the darker the people get, because that's the way the system has been set up, where once again, black people are, are put at the bottom of the totem pole and lighter skinned people are put more at the top. And then when you think of a Brazilian person, you don't necessarily think of a black person. You think of, of right. you know, somebody with like a, a medium, you know, dark complexion or something like that. Um, but you definitely don't think of, of black people when in reality, a good portion of Brazil is going to be people who are who, who look like like me or Rachel or Sebastian, Kylie, Knutia, right? You know, um, and then, yeah, everywhere else throughout the world, like even, you know, Korean TV shows and Korean music are getting a big bump right now. Um, and there's some really good shows out there and really good, you know, media. Uh, but if you look at those, the faces that represent that media are all extremely light. And I remember seeing yeah. something years ago. It was like a picture in a, like a, a store in, I believe it was in Korea. Um, but they basically had like a, a shelf that was full of skin bleaching cream where it was like cream that you put on your skin to make your skin like whiter, right? And so that's very popular. Or it was at least at this time. I don't know if that's still popular there, but it was very popular at the time um, to bleach your skin to try and make it whiter. Um, you know, so like these sentiments exist everywhere. Yeah, and tying in um, a little more is in Asia, and I, and I just know this really well because I TA'd for Mr. Dr. Rue for so long and I just know this, but in Asia in particular, um, it's interesting because, you know, we see when you think of, when people say Asian, they think of like East Asians. They don't think of, you know, more like darker skin countries, right? Like mm -hmm. I think um, Thailand would fall into that. Um, Hmong people fall into that. Cambodia. Um, Vietnamese people. Mm -hmm. What'd you say? Cambodian. Yeah, Cambodia um, and India, right? Mm -hmm. Those are all like darker skinned nations that are in um, in groups that are in Asia. But it's interesting because they are treated, you know, very similar to the way black people are treated in the United States and like North America. You're very like Western countries um, because they are like the darkest people of their ethnic group kind of, right? And so it's really interesting how that's why we say anti-blackness is pervasive everywhere because like the closest thing to blackness which like is still pretty far from it right but mm -hmm. the closest thing the next the darkest person i guess almost on like the food chain are these people and they are you know they again they have higher poverty rates they experience discrimination they you know they don't achieve as much educational attainment these are real 
things that happen in, in other countries. And so um, it's very interesting, like in particular in Japan, I know that, that, you know, where a lot of people immigrate to other parts of Asia, they experience a lot of discrimination and they can move somewhere else like United States or wherever. And that discrimination won't exist for them because um, particularly in Asia, there's this strong discrimination for darker skinned Asian people. Mm-hmm. And you know, when we talk about, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say also, I just remember this, it's also associated with like lighter skinned, I mean, this is kind of in the U.S. too, a little bit with colorism, but in particular in Asia, is like darker skinned Asians, uh, Filipinos also fall into this, they um they work in the rice fields. And so because they had to work in the rice fields, that's why they were darker versus, um, you know, lighter skinned people, they didn't have to work outside, they were inside the house, so they had lighter skin. Mm-hmm. I just want to add that. Go ahead. Yeah. And, you know, like the whole idea of anti-blackness, I guess we didn't quite define it. But when we define anti-blackness, we're talking about um, the idea that that being darker skinned, um, you know, is somehow a bad thing. Right. The closer you get to black, the worse it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And that as you move in the opposite direction towards whiteness, that's better. So like. You know, the, it kind of the whole idea of like white and delightsome or, or black is whack, right is, white is right. Um, that's essentially what um, anti-blackness is. And it's a social condition. It's a psychological condition. And it can be a physical condition in, in some sometimes. Um, but it stems from colonialism. Right. Because, you know, before then there was, you know, th- there were there were ways of discriminating and othering and things like that. There was tribalism and, you know, whatever yeah. else. But um but racism was invented basically in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, it started with phrenology, which was, you know, like the classification of, of people into different categories. I think it was like the, I don't even remember them all, but basically they divided the world into like whites, blacks, Asians, um, I think native Americans. And I think there was one more, I don't remember. Um, but then they said that, basically the size of a person's skull determined their level of intelligence and their level of like, you know, mental um, capability. And, you know, obviously with this, black people were at the very bottom and white people were at the very top of this. And according to them, like these dimples in your, in your skull um, determined, you know, what race of or class of people that you belong to and um, how mentally adept you were. Um, and this is all pseudoscience, like it wasn't actually accurate, but it was widely accepted at the time. And then it, you know, turned into a justification for the slave trade because it happened around the same time. And honestly, in my opinion, I think that, um, that Europeans needed justification for what they were doing because they knew that it was awful, you know, taking people from their homes, um, working them essentially until they died. I think that's what happened in Brazil. The The life expectancy for a slave in Brazil was eight, 22 years. Like that was when they were expected to die was around 22 years, um, you know? And so I think that there, there needed to be a justification for that. And racism was that justification. The idea that somehow black people were less, um, were less than, than white people. Um, that's where the comparison yeah, we're, to we're like less human. Yeah. Less human. That's where the comparison to apes comes in, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and those ideas um, exist. They still exist today. They were perpetuated for a long time. If you ever read the book Tarzan of the Apes, um, I've read that book a few times. It's actually a really good book. So I hate myself for reading it because it is so racist. Like 
so yeah. you know the story of Tarzan, right? And the book is a little bit different, but basically, um, you know, he's raised among apes in Africa. And like the way that this author talks about black people is just abhorrent. And then he like talks about how Tarzan is like this natural Englishman. And, you know, because he possesses the blood of an Englishman, he's like more intelligent than these savage Africans and, you know, all this stuff. Um, And those ideas, they existed and perpetuated for such a long time um, that they've carried on today into, you know, the cultures that that we have all over the world. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting what you were saying about phonology is like that was like justification for the eugenics movement that came around like I don't know exactly when the eugenics movement happened I don't know if you know Nate but if you guys have heard of it um I learned all about like chronology all this in the class in high school so like if you can find a documentary I don't know one but I highly recommend looking into this because it's very interesting information and it helps it sets the scene for why because it's so easy for us to now to be like oh I would never like basically dehumanize another person in that capacity. Mm. But like Nate said, slavery, you know, from the transatlantic slave trade was unique in the sense of it, other places that had slavery, it wasn't to the capacity that the United States had or other um, places in uh, South and Central America. And it, it didn't, you could get out of it at some point, right? Like it was because, it wasn't like this. It, it was nothing to the capacity that happened on this side of the the, the world. Mm-hmm. And um, the only reason it happened was because they had to justify them and see them as less than a person, less than a human, because nobody else could do that. So I highly recommend learning about more about phrenology and about the eugenics movement that happened kind of post, um, post-reconstruction and kind of understanding like, oh, wow, this is what you know, people tried to prove why black people were inferior still through science. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting stuff, though. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it creates a paradox, too, because you've got on one side, you've got anti-blackness. And then on the other side, you've got this obsession with um, black culture, specifically black American mm. culture um, yeah. throughout the entire world at the same time. Like, for instance, in Asia, there is. Um, an era of anti-blackness where, you know, if you are darker skinned, then you are less favorable. However, at the same time, they love them some NBA basketball. Like I was they watching do. a documentary on Netflix called The Redeem Team. And they were talking about when um, when they went to the so it was uh, the, like the, the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. And uh, the U at team USA went over there and Kobe was like the biggest celebrity, like nobody else, you know, LeBron was on that team. Carmelo Anthony was on that team. Um, Like a whole bunch of other big names, but Kobe was like God to them. Like they were showing up hours early just to watch his bus drive by and like showing up to the hotel and all these kinds of things. And, you know, so there's like that aspect where there's like this, this obsession with black culture. And then I don't know if you've ever seen the videos of like Asian people like getting their hair like micro twisted so they can get like a fade and use a curl. No, brush. I haven't. That? Yeah, they literally like put like these super tiny little rollers in their hair to make their hair like curly, like a black person's hair texture. And they'll get like I've a fade I've seen white people cut. do that, but. Yeah. I've seen a couple of videos of like Asian people doing that. Um You know, and then you, you look at uh, like hip hop and the way that that's influenced the world. I'll be out here hearing hip hop that's in French, Iranian hip hop, Dutch hip hop. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like these things that have permeated the hip-hop entire world. Hip hop turns 50 next year, by the way. Oh, shoot. That's crazy. It does. 1970, the Sugar Hill Gang. Huh? That's cool. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So, you know, you've got those things. And it's like creates this interesting paradox because they're trying to like adapt black culture without adapting black people at the same thing or adopt black culture without adopting black people at the same time. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. it's it's super interesting in the United States in particular, like, you know, because this is like black American culture. Right. And it's it's just interesting to me um, because other cultures do this as well. Like, um, I mean, there's lots of there's more nuances that can be said with this, but I'm going to be pretty black and white with what I say. So take this. I know I'm being black and white with what I'm going to say. So, um, for example, you know, I think about like other even other BIPOC people that, you know, um, adapt black culture, uh, black American culture for themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. In particular, mm-hmm. and that's because of the urban experience in certain ways. But I think in certain ways, um, Latino people do that. Oh, absolutely. Hispanic people do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I've seen that happen a lot with like Polynesian people as well as I've moved to this side of the country, the West Coast. I've seen that a little less with Asian people um, in my experience, mm-hmm. but. Well, they, they be loving hip hop dance. Yes, because of K pop. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's, it's interesting how like other, because I feel like white people know like, oh, that's not my lane. I can't, like, they're very aware, like, oh, I'm taking from and it's very it's very like direct like okay they're taking something from black american culture but i feel like other ethnic groups i don't know they feel like they have leeway to kind of borrow and adapt to their own and take i don't know rather like um, i'm gonna push back while they're also still anti-black like these are also like these other groups also have anti-blackness in them like my friends who are polynesian they're, they told me their parents told them, do not marry a black person. Mm-hmm. And if you do, it needs to be someone that looks like Drake. Yeah, I've known African people who um, who's, or who told me that their parents told them the same thing. Like, when you get to America, don't marry a black person. Yeah, same kind of thing. But um, I was so, going to say, like, when you were saying about, like, white people kind of staying in their lane, I disagree. Because I feel like they may not, like, okay. adopt. Maybe it's the white people I know. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm just thinking Here's the thing. I feel like if I confronted a white person about it and was like, oh, you're being culturally appropriating, they'd be like, oh, okay. Versus going to like a Hispanic person, a Polynesian person and telling them like, this is basically from black people and you're not giving us any credit and you have taken this and molded it for what you want it to be for your own culture, mm-hmm. but you're not recognizing any anti-blackness. They'd be like, no. We're well, the same. I, I think I think it's more ingrained than for white people because look at like Gen Z slang, right? We've talked about okay. this before. Where it's like basically just stuff that black people were saying like 20, 30 years ago, but now right. it's just what everybody says. And they're like, Oh, this is Gen Z. And they're like, no, it's black culture that you have taken and turned into just everything. So you hear stuff like no cap or dope or busting. Like these are all words that have been around for a very long time in the black community. And now that we like no longer use them that much, now it's become like a part of culture. And it's just kind of been ingrained. Or even things like when Meg the Stallion came out with Hot Girl Summer and then all of a sudden like old Navy TJ Maxx, Walmart yeah. were here like, oh it's your hot girl summer. Hot you know? girl summer. Like, I, I was on Pandora the other day, the radio station website. And they were talking like I, there was like a, an episode that was like tired of hustling. How about this and this and this? I was like, what, what you mean? Hello, hustling? I'm not hustling. hustling. Right. You know, hustling so it used to be seen as negative. Did you know that? It used to be negative. Really? Hustling. I, didn't. I felt like it was kind of like a more negative. Oh, like a hustle, word. like a scam? Like you hustled? Yeah. Them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like that's kind of how it was seen before. Like back in the 70s, I feel like. Yeah. 
I don't know. That's why I feel like you, now mm-hmm. it's positive, but I feel like it used to not always be that way. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah, like back in the 70s when it first came out, like, you know, if you were running a hustle, that was like you were running a scam. And then I think it kind of like transformed in the 80s and it kind of became like, oh, I'm hustling. And then by the time the 90s came around, hustling was probably a good thing. I don't know. But yeah, I just feel like things like that where it's just kind of like become ingrained. So I think maybe on an individual basis for white people, it might be a little bit different. But like, I think like on a, on a wider scale, I think um, corporate America especially takes major advantage of black culture um, to benefit, you know, to make a profit, to make a buck. Um, and it's not just black culture they do that for. They also do it with, um, you know, with Pride Month and, and things like that, you know, where they use it to make a profit. Or even, you know, all these, uh, all those emails that we got in 2020, you know, I was getting emails from like the, Not the, the, emails. You know, the library that I grew up, you know, going to. They're sending me emails talking about, we love, we, love our, we love our black people, you know, Uber sending emails, McDonald's sending emails. All of a sudden, a representation matters section pops up on Netflix and it's just like a bunch of black trauma mm-hmm. stories, you know, the color purple representation matters. I'm like, all right. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, kind of like what you were saying with, um, there is a difference with like Latino Polynesian cultures where it's like um, they're a lot less aware because I feel like a lot of it just kind of comes in with like the same, I mean, you know, growing up in similar areas, um, urbanization and whatnot. And with Latinos, there's a lot of crossover or with Latinx people, there's a lot of crossover, there is. Um, you know, because there are plenty of Afro Latinos, right? There are plenty of Right. Of people who share that heritage. And so it's a little bit more, the lines are a little bit more blurred there. Um, like I said, it's more nuanced. And I know yeah, that. And like, yeah. I'm like, yes, there's more to be said there. But oh, that's why I'm like, I'm making a very black and white statement. And I know that. And like, right. don't come for me. But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> overall, like, putting the nuance aside that I know and understand, but mm-hmm. I still feel like that statement is true. Yeah. Um, and almost like it's ignorance almost mm-hmm. that people feel like they, they don't have to check in almost sometimes. And I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying certain people because of their ethnic identity feel like they don't need to look at those things mm-hmm. or they want to escape their own ethnic identity so much. They have internalized racism within themselves that they don't want to um, acknowledge the anti-blackness that they perpetuate. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think, um, I guess talking like you had mentioned before, like when you said that there were Polynesian people who were told not to marry um, black people, they told specifically was, to marry white people. I think that that is like. Well, she, they weren't told to marry a white person. Oh, just they were not, just told to not marry a black person. Okay. And if they do, they need to look a certain way. Like I okay. want to quote their parents right now. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> my bad. Don't let me get it wrong. I don't want to sound stupid. No. But um, yeah, I think that that um, that that sort of anti-black sentiment mixed with the appropriation of black culture is very prevalent within the Polynesian community, but it's not talked Mm -hmm. about very much because it's very, um, not niche. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but it's a very small population relative to the rest of the country. Um, But, you know, yeah, I didn't know Polynesian people like on a personal level until uh I moved to Utah. Yeah. Yeah. See, I was born in Hawaii. So like I knew of Polynesian people, but like I didn't have many personal relationships until like, you know, got to Utah as well. Something Dr. Rue always says is that they're overrepresented in Utah and mm-hmm. um, California as well because they literally don't literally they don't exist outside of like not in a rude way but just like in large populations mm-hmm. outside of Utah, California, some in Washington, and um, some in Missouri too. 
and there's a random group in Texas. Mm, and in spring, yeah, I served there. And ho yeah, in Hawaii. Mm. That's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like outside of those populations. Yeah, that makes sense. And but, and in each population they exist in, they're overrepresented because it's not an accurate representation of how they are like globally or mm. nationally, whatever. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. Which isn't bad, but just like something to understand that like you won't experience that unless you're in those spaces that have that representation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, yeah, one thing that's there, if you're a Polynesian person listening to this or if you know somebody who's Polynesian, please don't say the N-word. It uh, is not a word that you should be using. Um, and this has been discussed before. But uh, and we will in 2023, we're going to do a whole podcast episode about this. So. Yeah, we will. <laughs> and I will die on this hill. Polynesian people should not be allowed to use the N word. It, um, it's not a word that. That has, uh, you know, other than other than like the 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 appropriation aspect, there's no significance there. Um, I don't know. Very nuanced, very complicated subject that we can dive more into at a later date. But. Yeah, I think that's about it for today. Yes, we honestly could go on about this whole conversation. We could mm. talk in circles because there's so much to say and um, so much lived and personal experience. But what I guess we'll have everyone to take away be do some research on anti-blackness, understand more, and kind of check on how you are maybe subscribing to things that are um, continuing to spread the narrative and support anti-black anti-black ideals and i say that among, amongst black people too you know we have our own issues within colorism but that's that's a black people conversation mm -hmm. i think but you know so that we all have a role to play to kind of eradicate this absolutely cool well uh, let me see one other thing before we do our recommendations we're going to do about let me see we're coming up on the end of the year We'll do, I think, two more episodes. Yeah. And then we're going to take a couple of weeks off for Christmas. And then we're going to come back bigger and better in January. So let me see. So we'll do an episode of the 7th and then the 14th. And then we'll be out of there. Honestly, we might even just do the 7th. We'll see. But, yeah, we'll let y'all know. Yeah, that's it yep. for that. Um, recommendations for this week. Rachel, you want to kick it off? I always forget about these, genuinely. Mm -hmm. um, recommend. Okay. Wait, it's a restaurant in Utah. Are we surprised that it's food? No. Give me a second. It's in Holiday, Utah. Okay. Okay, it's called Mint Tapas and Sushi in Conwood Heights but it's like in holiday kind of. Um, when I tell you guys, I had, what is the steak that's um, like Japanese? It's like Wagyu. Gyoza. Yes. Oh. Gyoza. No, oh, love gyoza. But no, this Wagyu, it was a pretty good price. It was like $16. <coughs> Wagyu is really expensive. <coughs> and it was so good, guys. Like so good. Got two smaller pieces. The sushi there was amazing. We got a bunch of like smaller things just to try because it's like kind of like an appetizer type share place and you get like one entree to share. So good. Highly recommend the restaurant. Very, very good. Waiter was amazing. Service was great. Um, and the prices were pretty decent for sushi 
uh, in Utah. So that is my recommendation for the week. I love that place. I'm thinking about one of their sushi rolls right now because I love Asian food. If you didn't know, that's my favorite. Um, so I recommend that place if you live in Utah. Yes. All right. Bet, bet, bet. My recommendation for this week is a Christmas movie, actually. It is oh. a Christmas movie that I watch with Cassandra every year. She hates it. I love it. I think oh. it is one of the greatest Christmas movies ever made. Oh, gosh. Um, what is it? It's so low budget, first off. But it's uh, it was written by, like, some random dude, I think just in Georgia, like, in Savannah, Georgia, just made a movie. Um, it was clearly, like, a bucket list type of thing. It's, it, but it's called Reindeer Games. And never heard of this. No, you no nobody ever has. Yeah, we just discovered it randomly. You can find it on Amazon Prime for free. Um, I highly recommend watching it. It's called Reindeer Games. Um, I think it came out in like 2019, 2020, somewhere around that time. And yeah, it's just like a little black Christmas movie that honestly has not not nothing to do with Christmas at all, except like some Christmas sweaters and like the occasional Christmas tree. But it is so good. There's a little twist at the end that you just never see coming. This is this is this is prime film. This is elite okay. filmmaking. So check it out. I'm gonna write this down, Nate. One of the best low budget Christmas movies you'll ever watch. Okay, Nate. When I come back down there, remember you're supposed to buy the things for me to try. Oh yeah, the Tim Tams. Yep. Yes. Put that on my that. list. Got to try the Tim Tams. Mm-hmm. And then also, thank um, you for joining us on the Black Menace podcast today. Okay. Make sure to follow us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at the Black Menaces. And make sure to subscribe to our Patreon, the Menace Society, where you can get bonus content from us on the podcast, as well as extra clips from our videos that we film. And don't forget to email us at blackmenacepodcast at gmail.com for menace moments or any other questions that you want us to answer because this show is for you guys thank you and remember always be a menace thank you